Matthew 24. We'll start from verse 42 to 51. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed the house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his house to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, whom his master when he comes will find him so doing. Assuredly I say to, to that evil servant, Assuredly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the masters of that servant will come on the day when he is not looking for him and at that hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. Lead us in prayer on that warm and fuzzy text. Yeah. Um, if you want to leave, feel free to go. Um, <laughs> it doesn't get any better. Um, but Lord, um, thank you, Lord, for for the text, the very convicting text um, that you prevented, you presented to us today, Lord. But also, we thank you for the redemption in the midst of this, Lord. And I just want to thank you for the service and the words we're about to hear, Lord, and that we don't leave here the same that we came, Lord, and that we leave ready to be lights of the world, Lord, and we leave ready to be faithful servants to you, Lord, and ready for the time in which you'll return, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Tinde. Good afternoon, friends. I'm sure those nods are big, hearty. Good afternoon. Thank you. Someone says it. Have you ever considered, here I am, I just got back from Israel last night, some of you are aware of that fact, and uh, of course it becomes a really popular place for people to start looking at the end times. They always been, there's a reason for it, because God tells us that, that the, the nation Israel is a barometer and, and certain uh, very sort of significant landmarks for the end times, and yet in that, I'll be honest, I've never seen a society less concerned about it than the society we live in. And I've learned, I mean, as, as, as I'm like praying about the fact that you, you, you're reaching out to people trying to find a pulse. If you were a paramedic and you were called to the scene of a body that you're not sure is alive or not, the first two things you look for is breath and pulse. And when you start to look for those things in a culture desperate for everything but Jesus, well, really desperate for Jesus. They just don't know it. And I'm not talking about the lost community. I'm talking about the community that we call the Christian community. And I look and I see the apathy. And I see the numbness. And I see the indifference. It makes me mad. Mad like crazy mad. Actually, probably both mads while we're at it. Both English and American mad. Because I look at this and I realize, what in the world are we doing? And I'm like, what are we missing? What is it that seems to be so lacking? And clearly, by the way, Jesus is the point of it. I mean, we're talking about writing this book, and part of it is about committing adultery with God via the Holy Spirit, ironically. How we want so much of the stuff of God, but we just don't want God. 
And I look at this text that Jesus has as a private dissertation with his disciples. And I can't look at this text sitting on the Mount of Olives praying about this, praying for England, praying for the UK, because this is my home. And going, God, this has to be absorbed. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact, as we consider that certainly the nation Israel as a barometer for the end times, but do you realize that Jesus wanted us to look not only at Israel, but also as the church, as the signs of the end times? This text was to disciples, to a small group of people, as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. Jesus has just walked through the temple area, and the disciples are having small talk. Now here, when we have small talk, we talk about the weather. There, when we have small talk, we talk about the buildings. And they're like, look at how beautiful the buildings are. And Jesus doesn't see the beauty. He sees the destruction. He is torn up. There's a part of Jesus that can't be completely, essentially, thrivingly joyful, happy, I should say, because he sees the oncoming inevitable destruction in front of him, and it inspires him, and it bothers him. I'm going to be picking verses, but I'm going to say, like always, please never just believe me. Never just assume what I'm saying is true because I say so. Some of you can repeat this verse by verse or word by word, I should say. Don't take my word for it. Take the word for it. Uh, So you need to meet Nathan, by the way. He's probably heard that now for 20 years or something like that. And I'm going to be trying to pick out the highlights, getting us to those verses at the end that were read so beautifully by Tunde and nervously, might I say. In chapter 24, verse 3, And this is why I need your Bibles open, because I want you to look at it with me. As he sat at the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. This is not a big open sermon like you would have had in Matthew 5-7 through to the many people that had been just touched by Jesus and healed. This is a private message between Jesus and those that are his. And they ask him, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? These are three questions. These things, Jesus had just spoken about the destruction of the temple. So they're like, well, that doesn't seem to fit and jive with my concept of the Messiah coming and dominating and restoring Israel to a place of world dominance. That just doesn't make sense to me. When in the world is that going to happen? And the sign of your coming, which tells us that they're starting to piece together the fact that Jesus may have to come again to actually set up that kingdom. And when does this whole thing shut down? So Jesus starts to speak in chapter 24, verse 4. Jesus answered them. He's answering their question. And he says to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. The first thing that Jesus wants to speak, and if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, notice I'm going to separate that from believer. I challenge you in the scriptures, be a student of the Bible. Look at how believer is separated from disciple in this sense. There are a lot of people who are willing to actually say, all right, Jesus, you can save me, but they're not interested in making him Lord. And in the end of it all, there are many who are in for a very rude awakening over this. And the first thing he wants us to know is that these end things that will be, he's speaking of will be characterized by even believers being led astray through deception. And he doesn't want you to be a part of it. 
He doesn't want you to be lied to and led in that lie. And inevitably, the question would be, we would ask is, well, how could a loving God allow such a thing? And I think we're asking the wrong question. The real question we should be asking is, why would those who claim to love God choose it? All of these, uh, these verbs are in the active tense. And what that means is, you choose the lie. It's there and available for you. And so is the truth. Now, can I just say, if we're going to be honest with each other, the truth does not appeal to our flesh. Because the truth demands our flesh die. When I first came here, there were a couple things I noticed. That was eight years ago now. One is this was a nation without a father. And that was very concerning to me. There were not godly, mature men that were willing to lead other men into what it means to grow up in Christ. Another thing is, is that I used to say that there are two crosses that should be preached for, John, for honest, genuine Christianity. And you never see the second one preached. See, the first one is the cross of Christ. The one that paid for your sins and mine. But the second one is the one you pick up to follow him. That selflessness, that abject you before me, it is just not preached. But what I've come to discover is you'd be hard-pressed to find either of those crosses preached anymore. And not just here, but in the entire Western world. But if we were to claim Christ as our Lord, a lie is going to be appealing to your flesh. It's going to be appealing to your selfish and my selfish nature. But that doesn't make it not a lie. So Jesus says, don't be deceived. And the first thing he's going to tell you is, do you want to make sure that you have the right Jesus? Because there are going to be many false Christs out there, false messiahs. Going through Israel, they certainly still have this rabbi from Brooklyn, who, by the way, never even made it into Israel during his lifetime, who had a stroke nonetheless, but he was benevolent and kind to the Jewish people, who, by the way, afterwards, people started to worship him as the messiah. Still do, by the way. A bunch of women say that they're possessed by him and he reveals himself. Uh, and uh, from that, people, there's this whole crazy cult about that. The reason I say that is you want to make sure you have the right Jesus. And the right Jesus is the Lord Jesus, by the way. Not just the bellhop Jesus. Not just the sort of go get me a donut Jesus or the homeboy Jesus. He's the Lord. And then Jesus speaks about wars. He says, you'll hear about wars and rumors of wars. And he says, but the end is not yet. I'd like you to realize that Jesus knew that world wars would not only come, but they would convince many that that would be the end of the world. Have you considered that? He says, nation will rise up against nation. He's like, you should be the only people on the planet saying this isn't the end of the world when nation rises against nation. Because the rest of the world is trying to use logic, and let's just be honest, it makes sense. Someone's going to press a big red button and the whole world blows up. What Jesus says is, you're looking the wrong place. He says there'll be famines, worldwide epidemics, earthquakes, and that is the beginning because that's what's kicking it off by the way it's interesting it seems to be after these world wars 24 verse 9 then 
They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Who is the subject of that verse? It's the church. The world's attitude towards biblical church is a barometer of the culmination of time. One of the first things God wants you to look at is, how does the world view the biblical church? Notice I'm saying biblical church versus just general, warm, fuzzy, spin-around, high-five church, with all due respect, if there need be granted. Because you need to recognize it's going to be trouble, people will be killed for their faith in Christ, according to Scripture, And there's not going to be a single nation out there that's going to be open-armed to your honest branch of Christianity. So, let me just make this clear. If you actually accepted Jesus Christ, because somehow in that you think that a lot more people are going to be your friends, what you're going to find is there are going to be those who love Jesus who are going to embrace you with open arms. And there are going to be a lot of people who wear the same shirts and sing the same songs who are going to have real problems with you. And you're going to be hated by all nations. There is not going to be a nation out there that's going to go, this is the place for your kind of Christianity. And I remind you, they're asking, so when does this whole thing wrap up? When are you going to show up? And he goes, you need to recognize if you are actually led by a necessity to be liked by everyone, and we're all born with some desire to be wanted, you better reconcile that with the Lord today because you're not going to make it. You're in, the moment someone gives you a cross look, and think about the culture we live in. The moment someone gives you a cross look and you, put, as a result of that, tuck the cross away, what happens when it really starts getting ugly? How are we going to stand then? Notice the next verse, verse 10. And then many will be offended and will betray one another. And hate one another. The word for offended is a, is a sort of familiar term if you're familiar with a little bit of the original language. It's the word scandalizo. We get the word scandal from it. A scandalizo, by the way, is that darn thing that sticks up in the pavement that you trip over every time, but you still think you're going to miss it. And you don't dare text in that area because you know you're going to stack the moment you get near that. Tripping stone. Well, that's the idea here. The question is, when it says many will be offended or many will be scandalized or many will trip and fall. Who is he talking about? Well, in order to trip and fall, you're going to have to have a walk. Because you can't trip and fall if you're not walking. But I want to remind you, look at the verse before that. People are going to be haters. Here's the most amazing thing. Everyone's like, don't be hating. Don't be hating. We're not haters. Except you. We hate you because we think you hate. But, and it's like, that's odd to me because you're obviously hating then. And then they look and go, well, you're a hater, so we hate you. And I'm like, well, what part do I hate? You know? And, and they're like, well, you hate what I do. And I'm like, yeah, well, actually I do because it kills you. And the reason I'm saying that is if you take verse 9 and 10 and put them together because actually they are together, 9 and 10, you get that. You've learned that in math. Well, then you realize the idea is, listen, the world's going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to make your life rough. They're going to kill you. I mean, this is going to get ugly and they're going to hate you and people are going to get tripped up from that. Who do you think is going to get tripped up? The world's going to get tripped up from that? They're too busy persecuting you. You know who's going to get tripped up is believers are going to get tripped up. But they're not just going to get tripped up. Notice what it says. They'll betray one another. 
Now the word betray, for what it's worth, by the way, there was para didomi. Didomi means to give. Para means beside. It's the closest example I can give you was what took place in the 1930s and 1940s when someone came to knock at your door and said, we know you're not Jewish, but you are required to tell me whose neighbors, which neighbors of yours are Jewish. And you said, down in number 12, down up in the second floor, that person's Jewish. You are handing them over. That's the term that is used here. And I want you to recognize, you can't hand someone over if you're not among them. It isn't like they come to you and ask you, unless you're in Brixton, well, tell me about the people in Brixton. They would expect you to be in Brixton to give that answer. And the reason I say that is, you need to recognize one of the things you're going to see in these end times as things start to wrap up here, is what you're going to see is, is that many people who are going to call themselves Christians are going to turn you in if you genuinely believe in that book that you carry in your hands. Because you're an enemy to them, because you actually stand for what the biblical representation of Christianity is, which is far more intense and far more definitive and far more absolute than the wishy-washy, kind of do it whatever way you want out there that people are trying to make. And he goes, you need to know. And you're going to understand, this can't be a warm message to hear from the disciples, but you can see Jesus going, you asked me. You want to know what it's going to be like? Let me tell you what it's going to be like. A lot of the people that you think are your brothers and your closest friends are going to not only bail on you, but they are going to betray you, and then they're going to hate you for it because they're going to be so freaked out and afraid of the world system. You're going to actually, they're going to have to side with them out of fear. And then look at verse 11. Don't worry, it gets better, but... Not for a while. In verse 11 and 12, it says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Look at a three-step process, first of all. Notice, the world already is already hating Christians, biblical Christians. They're being betrayed by other people within the group. And I'm not here to make you paranoid. I'm here to actually get your focus back. Mine too, by the way. And then people are going to stand up in spokesmen and say, yeah, You know what? I'm a spokesman for God, but notice they will arise, which means they're from among us, literally, but they will deceive many. Well, who are they going to deceive? The world? The world's already deceived. They're going to deceive followers, believers. And what's going to be their message? Well, look at the second part, because lawlessness will abound. You know what their message is? You don't really need that book. You really don't need God's rules. Make up your own. Come on, Really? Anomi is the word. As negative, like atheist. Atheist means no God. Uh, well, then get the idea. Namia means law. Anamia means, come on, you really don't need those rules. Come on, really? You really think that those things still are applicable today? Don't you think God's judging on a sliding scale? Funny, I don't see God adding revisions to his book. And the result, and now listen, please hear this with your heart the very thing that actually is supposed to make you feel like you have more freedom, what does it take away? Look at the next part. Remember, there's three steps on that. What does it take out of you? Love. So here you are busy trying to be, all right, you know what? I want freedom, man. I don't want all these laws. This is so confining and all of that. You know what it's taken out of you? It's taken out of you love. Literally, by the way, by the way, the word love there, some of you are familiar with the word agape. Why is, it so familiar? Why is that so important? Because who has agape love? Christians do. If God is love and God dwells within you, it isn't like the world has this kind of love except selfless surrender towards their own destruction. But understand, this is what's going to happen here. The question is, is it happening to you? 
Imagine it's like Suzanne and I are like, well, you know, we've decided to have a more open relationship. This is absolute nonsense, by the way. Don't think it's even a consideration or on the table. But, you know, it's like, well, you know, the general traditional laws about marriage and what that should be and faithfulness and consideration and investment and all that. But, you know, come on, the world's kind of changing. And so, you know, shouldn't we be able to like, come on, like one of that what Ronald or Ronaldino or Ronald the Bambino or whatever, doesn't he have like four wives now, right? And he's like, I'm marrying them all. And they, I don't understand how they get along. But anyways, you know, they must not be sober. Anyways, I mean, come on, that's just kind of what's going around right now. Come on, let's break that up. But you know what it's going to do? It would destroy the love we have for each other. Just be honest. But it would be amazing how many people, oddly enough, would be like, wow, look at how progressive you are. But what are we progressing towards? Please hear me. If somebody starts toting freedoms that stand against Scripture, you're going to have to make a choice. But you need to know what it's in the balance. What's in the balance is real love. Because you're not going to get it in a world with no absolutes. You are not going to get it in a place where you make it up as you go along. Because you know when you start making it up, it will always be selfish. Is this not to the church? The term grow cold, by the way, you might be familiar with it because this is actually the crazy part. The literally to breathe out or in essence to extend your soul is the term psycho, or we would say it this way, psycho. It's literally the term. So I might say the love of many will grow psycho. It's literally what we're looking at here. Verse 13, but he who endures to the end will be saved. You can't endure if you're not there. Endure means you have to remain. Literally, by the term, by the way, literally the term is upomeno. Meno means to stand or remain. Upo means under. To remain under. Hear me on this. Who do you remain under? Somebody that has authority over you. And the whole challenge goes all the way back to Genesis 3 in the garden. You realize if you eat of this, you'll be like God. No one's going to be above you, man, or woman. Come on. Aren't you tired of feeling like a slave? Aren't you tired of feeling like someone's always over you? But can I just put it this way? If you won't stay under, you'll seek to take over. And you realize the whole point of this is lordship. When was the last time somebody actually told you that Jesus was Lord and I don't mean that just in some song, but in regards to the lifestyle choices you need to make. He's still the boss. And we still, by the way, one way or another, we are all going to, if we have a knee, we're going to bow it to him. And if we have a tongue, we're going to confess he's Lord. Satan seems to have a knee and he certainly has a tongue. And he is going to confess Jesus is Lord. Every person going to con- is going to confess that. But we're the, actually the ones who are supposed to demonstrate that now. And I ask you, how much of Jesus being Lord flavors, directs, and influences your life or mine. Because he's like, you know what? These guys, these false prophets, the whole point is, come on, man. You tell God your dreams. You tell God your lifestyles. You tell God what, who you are. You were born this way. This was your ambition. This is who you are. And, you, you know, and if God isn't in cool with it, well, then clearly he's not taking you for who you are. But my thing is, if you're not taking him as Lord, you're not receiving him for who he is. And you're going to have to deal with that. And then he says the gospel will be preached worldwide and then the end is going to come. By whom? Who's going to preach the gospel? 
144,000, two witnesses, earth-spanning angels. Remember they asked, well, what about the whole end of it all? What does that look like? 15 to 28, he talks about the tribulation. By the way, there's tribulation and great tribulation. Great isn't like, yeah, yippee, this is the great part of the tribulation. We might say it's the mega tribulation. 24, 24, I'd like you to look at this. This, in in the environment and society that I've been in in the last two weeks, has been profoundly affected. False Christs and false prophets. Remember, those are the ones that were like, come on, man, stop like making all those rules. Oh, God, what does he have to do with that? They'll arise and show great signs and wonders, deceiving even the elect. Wait a minute. One of the greatest tools to lead astray believers of Jesus is the supernatural. I have actually sat and listened to and been in the party of over 20 different societies in the last two weeks that I've sat with ministries so forth of people in Israel. Now, by God's grace, not everybody's in this. But it astounded me how many people were saying what we really need are more signs and wonders. If we could just get more signs and wonders. I'd like to challenge you again. If you're the kind that likes to study history, study the history of revivals. Find out what a revival really looks like according to scripture and according to history. And then see what stops them. Have you ever wondered, how does a, how does a revival stop? Some guy stands up and you know what the first thing that starts to happen is? The church starts to openly repent. That's the first thing that always seems to happen. People get honest about their sin, their worldliness, their apathy, the very stuff that when God says in Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, this is the stuff God's really looking for. See, revival, you can't have revival without vival. And vive means life. You can't revive someone who's never been alive. The world can't be revived. We can be revived. The world needs to come alive for the first time. But the world will come alive for the first time if the, if the church isn't alive to do it. And I'd like you to realize that there is a whole branch, and I'm not telling you they're not saved. That's not for me to decide, but I'm telling you there is a place where people are consumed looking for the supernatural. And if somebody can actually make all of that happen, people will follow him blindly. And it says, then I'll push a secret, Jesus. This kind of thing where it's like, you know, if they say there he is in the desert or there he is in the, up, you know, in the inner room, by the way, the very thing the Jehovah Witnesses, of course, have said, he we showed up, but we weren't ready, so we went into the inner room, which was perfect because it's the one thing Jesus said. If they say that, don't believe them, by the way. They, boy, boy, did they make it easy. And then he says this first. Look at twenty four twenty eight. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now, there are some of you who might have versions that will actually translate it vulture. And the reason is because after eagles don't have the tendency to eat carcasses. They will when they're quite hungry, by the way. In Israel, there's, I don't know, eight different branches or, or breeds of, of eagles. And there certainly are those types. The word, by the way, for it's with ayatos. Ayatos means eagle. So why not vulture? What's the big difference? And I realize that eagles will eat dead bodies, but they'll also attack sleeping bodies. As where vultures will not go near something until it starts to rot. And after all, when you take a look at them, you realize 
the Lord was having a very bad day when he was actually making them. Anyways, and, and I look at this and I realize the word for carcass for what it's worth, is the word potoma. And potoma means to be ruined, lifeless, or fallen. It comes from the word pito, which means to fall. And I realize what he's saying is there's a fallen body. So we naturally go, well, that must be dead because it's fallen, but you fall asleep. Now, there is a rule, and forgive me for being a little technical, and I'm going to, I mean, once we bring this in, we're going to start, you know, we're, all of this is being poured into the blender so we can drink this as a very bitter juice and then decide what we're going to do with it. But, uh, but please understand, I'm saying this because I need to hear this too. And he said this is a plural thing. It wasn't an eagle, it was several of these things that was in the plural sense. And there was a relationship that's called the relationship, the antecedent relationship, and the marriage of antecedent. And what that means is, is that if there is a pronoun, him, the, they, that kind of thing, uh, and that has to be married to already a definitive noun previously. What was the definitive noun previously in the plural? It was false prophets and false Christs. False teachers, false prophets. Well, they're the last plural, and I'm looking going, so they're the eagles in this particular metaphor? So who are the false teachers feasting on? like eagles. Who are the false prophets feasting on like eagles? The church. That's where they're setting up shop. So you realize what he's telling us is, what you need to see is that the church is going to be at best, at best, sleeping, at best, or comatose, or for the most part, dead. And you know how you'll know, it's things that eat dead things are going to gather around and have a feast on them. I would love to tell you that there's a great revival that we should be waiting for any time now. But I'm telling you that what's clear in Scripture historically as well is when Jesus came, the Jewish nation was not in a place of revival. It wasn't like if the Jewish people could just revive, then the Messiah would come. And there's a whole branch of us within the, you know, us, I shouldn't say us, but well, us, yeah, like Nehemiah in the sense of the massive, the, the big massive church that looks and goes, if we could just get everyone saved and just kind of really get things together and we could fill the O2 with people for four more days of praise, clearly the Lord will show up. And what the Lord is telling us is, look at what you get. What you're going to get is the world's going to hate you. You're going to be betrayed by people around you. And then it's going to be like a dead body. Whether it is or like, one way or another, those things that feast on it are going to clearly be having a field day on this. Because what I've learned is, when God's people cease to do what God is, wants them to do, God's just going to have to show up and do it himself. Isn't that what happened when Jesus showed up the first time? But there's always a remnant. There's always a group of people. Because he tells us, the time is coming when many, and the terms are like most, of those calling themselves Christians will not endure sound doctrine. So you want to tell them, hey, you know what? Do you really want to go and get wasted like that? Do you know there's, there are churches up and down Oregon, which is just above California, and I only mean that geographically. They're certainly not above us in the other way. That, uh, it's like pot-smoking churches, because it's legal there. They like Afterwards, it's like they go and have church, and then they go and get wasted and eat M&Ms or something. But I mean, like, that's like their thing. I think, man, would you be a part of that? And they're like, well, it's legal, so it's not illegal. I'm like, no, it's legal according to the, to the world standards, but it's illegal according to God's scripture because he tells you to be sober. But if the world permits it, is that good enough? Which standard are we going to go with? And there's a paradox notice in this, by the way, and that is that there's extraordinary supernatural things taking place with these false teachers and false prophets while the body's dead. 
Isn't it weird to think all this supernatural stuff could be happening, but the church is still lacking the one thing that gives them life? The sleeping church is resting on a bed of apathy to its adulterous worldliness, to its biblical ignorance, and to the lost world that's perishing around them. And they're shading their eyes from any reality of Christ's inevitable return. And then he says, I'm going to return. This is the state when I come and set up my reign. 29 to 31, then comes the king of glory with his 1,000 year reign. And it's simple. The sky falls, Jesus appears, and the world mourns. But look at verse 31. And obviously, we're getting quite close to our text now. It says, He will send His angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. My question is, where are the elect at this time? Where does He gather them from? From where? Four winds of heaven. The elect aren't there. The elect are in heaven, and he gathers them for this reign. Did you notice it wasn't like he gathers them from four parts of, of earth? The earth is going to get really nasty, but I have no intent on being here for that. You'd say, well, that sounds escapist. Well, if the house is on fire and you want to escape, is that a bad idea? So he says, Listen. Let's go with something simple. You guys know fig trees. And one thing you know about fig trees, by the way, is that they have a tendency to warn you before they bear fruit. They produce the leaves in a way that you kind of know. Fig trees are actually very predictable. Notice verse 34 and 35. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Some of you have read that and you've gone, well, wait a minute. That generation passed. That generation Jesus was speaking to. He isn't talking about that generation. He's talking about the generation of the things he was just speaking about. It's like all of this stuff that's happening and the church totally growing cold and all these fulfillments of these things. He goes, that generation, by the way, that's how close it is. When you see that generation, that generation isn't going to die before all this happens. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, well, they won't pass away. So he says, let me tell you, on that hour, my arrival, no one knows. And you go, well, wait a minute. I would know if I've actually done all the math on this. Well, there's a difference between Jesus' visitation and Jesus' reign. When Jesus goes to rescue his people so he can put us in heaven, so he can gather us from there, then you don't know when that's coming. When Jesus comes to set up his thousand-year reign, you can actually bank on when that's going to be because you can count seven years from the beginning of a covenant that the Antichrist makes. You can predict to the day when he's going to do that. All you have to do is know the, the time when he did it. But when he comes for his people, and here's the crux of all of this as we start going for the throat now. Now it's time for spiritual Kavmagra. Yeah, you're going to see this and this, but then I'm going to come and set up my reign. The things you were looking for, that whole setting up the kingdom, Israel having its dominance over the world, that stuff you're kind of really looking for, you can know these are the things that are going to lead up to that specific event. But me coming for you, though, you need to recognize that could happen at any given moment. You know what it's going to look like? It's going to look like the days of Noah. Madness, sexual promiscuity of all kinds of crazy things. In a simple sense, it'll look like business as usual until the person in the cubicle next to you winds up disappearing. 
You'll be in the field, you'll be grinding, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, two people are there and you're like, so Bob, oh, Bob, where'd Bob go? That's the idea here. And he goes, you need to recognize it will be a very ordinary moment or it would seem like an ordinary moment till this happens. And that takes us to our text. But I'd like you to realize something as we get into this. And by the way, I'd say I'm almost done, but I don't know. We'll see how that works out. Let me just say this. Jesus always left his people excited about his return. He always left them with that idea. In John 21, when Jesus is restoring Peter, and remember Peter, there's always this rivalry between John and Peter. You're probably aware of that. Matter of fact, John makes it really clear because John writes in his own gospel, remember when Mary told us that we were going to, the, you know, that Jesus was alive? We both ran, but I got to the tomb first. And then Peter, following after me, because I got to the tomb first. And then the guy that got to the tomb first, there was that. By the way, when Peter whacks off that ear of Malchus, the high priest, do you know the only apostle who wants to tell you that of the gospel writers is John? Just so you guys know, it was Peter who did that. I mean, that's what you get between them. There was this rivalry. So when Jesus is restoring Peter, John somewhere in the distance and Peter looks and he goes well what about that guy and John's got to write this down because it's in his gospel so you can imagine him going Jesus restore him and all he's trying to do is figure out what about me and Jesus goes if that guy lives until I return what difference does that make to you now Jesus didn't say that was going to happen that's what John does Jesus didn't say that was going to happen and lots of rumors came around that I wouldn't die until you know that Jesus would come back before I died he goes but that wasn't what he said he goes what he was saying is Peter that's none of your business but just the same, Jesus could have squelched that whole thing at any given moment and said, by the way, just want to make clear to everyone that was just a saying. That wasn't me saying he isn't going to die. He never clarified that. Why? Because every time John got a cold, people got excited. When Domitian wanted to boil him alive in oil, people are like, oh, he's coming back any moment now. And then John didn't die. You're like, are you kidding me? You know, and then they say it's because, you know, John was the original friar. You know, you get the idea. But the point's really important to, to recognize that Jesus left you excited about the idea that he could return at any given moment. In Acts 1.8, when Jesus is about to descend, uh, ascend into heaven, remember the disciples ask him, is this the time now when you're going to set up your kingdom? In other words, we assume it could be right now. In 2 Timothy, just so you realize, at the end of Paul's life, I mean, people say this whole idea of a rapture, by the way, didn't take place till the 5th century. Well, that can't possibly be the case. Because Paul, for what it's worth, in 67 AD, writes to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he speaks about two men. And one guy's name is Hymenaeus, and another guy's name is Philetus. And they said, they're these kind of people, by the way, that they've actually strayed concerning the truth, and they've told everyone that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. See, the resurrection was in, in the people's idea. That was God coming and redeeming his people. He was pulling his people out of this. And these guys were going, well, it already happened. And it's like the rapture already happened and you missed it, man. So you can't tell me that it wasn't happening in those days. But the church lived in ardent expectation of Jesus' eminent return. It fueled their faith. It ignited their ministries and abolished all apathy, indifference, and procrastination because it could be at any given moment. And here's the point of this as we bring this around now. When Jesus starts speaking in these last verses that, that were so wonderfully read by Tunde, you realize Jesus says, in the end of it all, the church is going to get knifed which tells me somehow when all of this 
clearly he's talking about the church in London because nobody knows how to get knifed like we do. And he tells us it's going to get cut in two. And it's going to get cut in two. And it's like, there are just two categories. There won't be whether you're Pentecostal or whether you're liturgical. It won't be whether or not you're an old church or whether you wear a robe or whether you come in in flip-flops. It will not be about any of those things. It won't be about whether you sing hymns or whether you sing praises. Praise, you know, what are they called? Praise choruses or whatever. It won't be about any of that. It's going to be about whether you're a faithful servant or whether you're an evil servant. And that's the only two categories that are here. Notice what he says. There's either the faithful ones that will be rewarded or the evil ones that will be rejected. And notice what he says in, in verse, in, 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 look at what it says in, in verse 51. It says, but at the evil servant, he says, by the way, blessed is the one that when the Lord comes, he finds so doing. Well, what's the one doing that's blessed? He's watching for him. He's watching for the Lord's return. And let me ask you something. Honestly, when was the last time you ever really thought, wow, the Lord could come back today? This could be the day. This could be the day the Lord comes for us. Because we, we live in a culture where it just isn't remotely on the table. And what Jesus is saying is, there are those who are going to be blessed. And there are those who won't be. And the only ones that are going to be blessed are the ones who are actually excited about my return. They're watching for my return. They're not just looking at other stuff and arguing over the politics and being upset about the way things are going and upset about the weather. The one thing they're going to be doing is going, when is this Lord going to come back? And you know what he says? He says that there are going to be those who are going to mock from among us. They're going to say, when was that return that you guys are talking about? You guys are idiots. Things have always been like they've always been. And you realize there are going to be people within the church. They're going to look at you and think you're an imbecile because you genuinely think the Lord could come back at any given moment. But what happens if you don't? Well, then there's no hurry. Can I tell you, if the, if the enemy cannot convince you that there's no hell, and if the enemy can't convince you that there's no harm to sin, the enemy can try to convince you there's no hurry. And we get comfortable and we rest on our couches of grace while the world goes to hell around us and the church starts to fall asleep. Notice verse 51, the evil servant, this is what he says in his heart. If he says it in his heart, that means the only one who's going to hear that conversation is God. We can't hear that. He says, my master is delaying and is coming. So what are the things that you would recognize in it? It says he begins to beat his fellow servants. Tupto is the word. Tupto, by the way, means to abuse. It's either to physically abuse or to verbally berate, but it's the same idea. And who is he berating? Servants. That's who he's berating. Notice what it says. He begins to beat his fellow servants. You know what a wicked servant looks like? Somebody who turns on unfaithful believers, faithful servants, and abuses them in whatever way. But you know what else it says? Then he begins to eat and drink with the drunkards. I'm not making it up. Look at it yourself. In other words, he's going to be more at home with those going to hell than he is with the faithful servants that are seeking the Lord. They're joining the world's rebellious, unrepentant, irreverent, lordless party. While the faithful servants become the point of their mockery. I want to warn you, if there is the hint of that in your heart or in my heart, may God slay it today. 
where you look at those that are really sold out for the Lord and you know that God has more for you, but you're afraid. You're afraid because you know that if you do that, you're going to lose friends. Yeah, you probably will. I'm just going to let you know you will. And the world's not going to stand up and applaud you. Of course it's not. But imagine the Titanic's going down. You have a lifeboat and you're inviting people on and they don't want to join you and you feel guilty for being on the lifeboat and you feel like the odd one out because you're actually not going to die when the ship goes down and you're actually inviting them onto the ship and they're making fun of you. Do you realize if you get caught up in that moment, you feel bad for being on the, on the one thing that saves you while the other people would rather die in the ship that's going down? Is that really where you want to be? Do you want to just jump out of the ship, the little lifeboat? Because after all, in the end of it all, all your friends are going down. Look at I'm here to tell you, what my hope is today, for you and for me, is that God would grab the defibrillators. Now, if you've ever seen something that's starting to lack a pulse and you've ever actually seen someone defibrillate, do you know what that is, by the way? Those two things that are shock, and they put them, by the way, usually like here and here, because they have to actually send an electric signal across your heart. And what happens is they stay clear, and it's like, and that whole thing, the whole body jumps out of the thing, because that, it takes a violent resuscitation to get a pulse back. And God's church, God's body needs to get that pulse back. But for that to happen, it's not going to happen with a tickle. Now look at I know that we love to bask in the love of God, and you know that, but the love of God is what's compelling me to tell you the truth. Like it or not, the church, you, me, we're going to be split into two, and on one side or the other, we're going to wind up being there. And we're either going to wind up being with the faithful rewarded, or we're going to be with the faithless evil that are actually rejected. And I find it interesting, because the world is maneuvering and bulking itself up for the final greatest battle of good and evil, and the church is reticent to figure out what side it wants to take. How in the world could we look like free agents? How could we look like, well, I'm not really sure where I want to be in this. Really? Really? Because the line between good and evil is getting really big and dark and wide. Have you noticed that? And what's happening is as the, law, as the ground starts to separate between us, there is no way to straddle this anymore. You're going to have to pick a side. But I want to tell you, pick that side that only is right. And I want to end with this. He tells you to watch. Can I just say three things to challenge you there? And by the way, you know that any of this, even if none of you were here, I would need to hear me say this for me. You need to watch from distractions. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 tells us that, you know, when the end comes, you know what the people will be saying? Peace and safety. It's interesting, Daniel 11 makes it clear, by the way, Daniel 10 and 11, about the Antichrist and why he rises up. He will be the greatest campaigner for social justice you've ever seen, and he'll be extremely effective. He will help eradicate poverty on a world-scale level that we've never seen before. And, by the way, as well, help exterminate great epidemics. Those very things which, by the way, Jesus told us, that you're going to see those things happen on the earth as the beginning of all of this. It tells us he'll speak blasphemies against the God of gods. He'll prosper in what he accomplishes in all of this. And he'll have no regard for the God of his fathers, nor will he have any regard for the desire of women. You can decide what that means yourself, but I can tell you this. He will be a fantastic campaigner for the LGBTQEE. I'm using EE when that means is everything else. So they can stop adding letters to it. 
He will be a fantastic campaigner for it. Is our world ready for such a guy? Yeah, our world's totally primed for that. For somebody that campaigns and says everybody has a right, there were, you know, though of course we can't find the gene, clearly you must be born that way, so just get, well, get over it. And the whole idea of it is, is that the church, it's not about the world, it's about the church, I remind you. This whole thing's about the church. Social justice cannot be the emblem or icon, nor the extent of our outreach. If our banners are full of temporal, be them however important, campaigns and causes, we lack the long sight of eternity, the one place we'll all must face, and the only thing that we alone are equipped to offer. Have you ever seen a generation more consumed with social justice? And I'm talking about the church generation. Sitting with my 15-year-old, I don't want to give her any more age than she already has, it's hard enough at 15, and telling her, tell me if this makes sense to you. Because my appraisal of this is I've never seen a generation more consumed about social justice, the right to judge over social issues, but a generation that finds it preposterous that a holy God would judge them. Her response is, oh, Dad, it's, yeah, they're, they're completely absorbed in social justice, but they find it preposterous that anyone would judge them. Which puts them as the God of the paradigm. Let me put it this way, if I can, please. There's a homeless guy out there, and you're going to try to help him. The question is, are we seeking to get him a home, or are we just seeking to get him a better box? Because all of the social justice we do without eternity is getting him a better box, but it doesn't get him a home. Are you distracted? Now, look, at, I'm not saying you, do, you avoid social justice. What I'm saying is it's a means to the end of eternity. You help somebody... Get you take care of them so that they can realize that there's a God who loves them so they could respond to Jesus. Because the Antichrist is going to be super Mr. Social Justice and the world's going to jump on his ship so quickly because of it. They'll be like, I can't believe you think this guy... And you know what? Those that are biblical, that one said when the world seemed like it was falling apart in World War I or II, we were the ones going, well, clearly according to Scripture, that isn't the end of the world. And they look and go, oh, shut up. Yes, it is. And guess what? We were right in the end, even though we took the heat for it. And then you realize, on the other side of that, it was, of course, the springboard for lots of cults. But for the biblical person, they kind of looked and went, no, Jesus actually said, don't be deceived by that. When you see that stuff, it's not the end. And when you see this guy rise up and do all this social justice stuff, that does not mean that he's under me. But the second thing is the delusions. And we talked about that, that false Christ, false prophets that will do all of this supernatural power. Listen to what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, that the coming of the lawless one will be according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. All power, all signs. All lying wonders. One thing you're going to see with the Antichrist is this guy will lack no supernatural power. And if the church is hungry simply for spiritual, supernatural power, this guy is going to own it. But we cannot let the supernatural be the unequivocal litmus for God's presence and blessing. In the end of it all, where is Jesus in it? Is he Lord? Is he the end or the means to it? The last thing, so we can close this up. You should be watching, and I should be watching, for distractions, for delusions, but finally, am I, walking, am I looking for Jesus? 
He doesn't say, when you see these things, look around. That's not going to give you any encouragement. You want to get depressed? Read the news. You want to get excited? Read the good news. Jesus says, when you see these things, look up. Not because you don't want to see what's around you, because your redemption draws near. Now let me ask you, and I ask you me as well. Where's my heart at right now if the Lord were to come back? Would there be a division in my own heart? Because the issue isn't whether or not he's going to return during this service. And as long as we've gone, maybe you thought, well, maybe he will. The issue isn't whether or not he returns during this service. The issue is that I would be in the right heart space if he did. Would I see him and regret what I wished I had done had I actually momentarily considered his coming beforehand? You realize once he comes, there'll be nobody to share the Lord with. There'll be nobody to teach. There'll be nobody to minister to. We'll be like him. We'll be, we'll be absorbed in him. And this is all you get. Those of you who've ever played a sport, you know what it's like when the whole thing's over and you just wished you had actually spent a little more, especially when you felt like you'd gotten so close. You realize, man, if I was actually in the right place, the right headspace to give it all, we would have won this one. Well, you are more than a conqueror and you can bank on that, but I can tell you right now, the inevitability of his imminent return not only serves as a constant reminder of how essential we must be right now, but it also makes you ask, let me ask, do you really know this Jesus? Do you? Do you know the one that not only saves, but actually has the right to be Lord of all? He's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And we don't just mean that sense, haha, we're on the winning team, but he actually has to be your Lord and your King. Because as we go to prayer, this same one took everything that owns you, your sin, your shame, my sin, my shame, my disgrace, my filth, and he laid it upon his own shoulders and nailed it to the cross so it could be left there for good. And when he died there, he paid it in full. There's no way we could even pay for our own without spending eternity away from him. And Jesus took not just yours, but everyone's, including mine, and he put it upon his own shoulders, and he died there to pay it in full, was buried, and just like Scripture promised, rose again on the third day to say, it wasn't enough to keep me down. So let me ask you, is there anyone who has a right to be Lord more than him? Do you have a right to be the Lord over your life more than him? Have you accepted that Jesus as Lord and not just Savior? Not just as a get out of hell free card, but as somebody that ignites you because you realize that there is a girl walking around with an engagement ring right now. I at least I'm told that and we've seen pictures according to what Susanna has shown me. That is part of our fellowship. But imagine if she were to ask, so when's the wedding? And he, if he were to say, I don't know, sometime, maybe whenever. And then he just left and she didn't see him again. Sooner or later, that ring's not going to mean much to her. And if you think that all that the Lord has left, his Holy Spirit is a guarantee of your inheritance and your redemption and the fellowship so we could be like in essence the ten virgins to excite you about his return. If you actually forget about his return, you will not actually stay pure as the bride God intended for you to be. And God actually really is excited about coming back. I'd love to be half as excited about his coming back as he is. And in this country... We just don't think like that. So I'm here, by the way, I'm not here to represent American Christianity because I don't think it's much better there either. 
we're just, we're just lagging behind. We're just slow to take. And in fairness, we haven't been around as long. I'm here to represent biblical Christianity. The one that says that this is who Jesus is and he's coming back and, and, and if he is, wouldn't it be nice if you were excited about it? Blessed is the servant whom when the master comes, finds so doing. What if today he ignited that in your heart and mind? What if today was the day you were like, Lord, if this was the day, no regret. Because sooner or later, God's going to have to do something to, to jolt the body, his body into, into a pulse. And I'd love it to start here. What if we were the adrenal gland? You know, the part that says, come on, body. Let him be Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, I recognize this text is a heavy one. But it's what I need. I recognize, Jesus, we walk out. I, I spent a week and a half not hearing your name blasphemed once. What an amazing gift that was. It was like walking around taking a bath. And I didn't get as far as Heathrow before somebody just started bringing your name up in a way that was blasphemous. And I immediately wanted to rattle off. Hey, that's, give me back that name. That's my Savior. You have no right to that name in, your, in, in the way that you're saying that. But I recognize, Lord, taking your name in vain is more than just you saying your name when someone stubs their toe or when they don't seem to get their luggage out correctly out of the overhead compartment. I realize using your name in vain is any time that we're actually bringing up your name and it doesn't declare you Lord in doing so. It devalues you as something less supreme. And God, in this country right now, we need you to bust through the overcast, the gray Lord that is out there, of a world that is in a Titanic right now, on its way down, still playing their fiddles. And I pray, God, that you would revive us. Revive us to this place, God, where we recognize that your love compels us to tell people the truth. And whether that, and it will be at the expense of comfort, no doubt. And it will be at the expense of things that will make things awkward. But we can't claim to love someone and be indifferent about their destruction. And as we look at the church, I just, I find it hard to believe it could get worse in some cases than what we see. But Lord, I pray that you inspire within us a hunger for your truth and that you overhaul our perspective to one to live in ardent expectation of your return. And Lord, if today be the day that you return, may we live a life that is so surrendered and so underneath to remain under that our hearts, even at the thought of your return, skip a beat again. And in that beat skipping, Lord, recognize that there's a pulse there. Jesus, we confess that you did more than simply die on the cross for us, though you did die on the cross for us to pay for all of our guilt and shame. But you rose again. And in rising again, you offer us a brand new life under your lordship. And we don't want to make you our biblical butler when you deserve to be our risen Lord. So would you please forgive us 
for our apathy and our indifference and our worldliness and our compromised state. It's like the body that gets cut in two, if we're going to be honest, is probably our own hearts itself that needs to be severed. That that part, Lord, that's just dead and sucking blood, but for no good reason. God, that that part be removed and replaced, Lord, with a heart that thrives at your word. And Lord, one that, that pulses at your spirit. And God, one that is driven by your love to serve one another and put others before us. And to be bold before a world that otherwise would have no witness whatsoever of honesty and truth. So God, we just say today, please, have your way now. Jesus says, you are our Lord and not just our Savior. Make us people now that are willing to be the difference. Agents of change. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to thank you for the privilege I recognize. This was like, hey, everyone, come on in, get a hug, and then get smacked around in the woodshed. It needed to happen. And I, need, I needed this. I couldn't go. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I have a minor in cults. I don't know if you know that. I have a minor in cults because I never wanted to actually be part of one except to study them. Because I never wanted to see people get led astray. God gave me a pastor's heart before I even knew what that meant. And it, it really does hurt to watch what I see because it's just like we are fish surrendering ourselves to the hook that has no bait on it whatsoever I just don't I, I love you guys too much to see that happen to you at least without being the watchman on the wall so Lord I just pray that as we leave here as we depart from here that you fill us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit and then you make us the people Lord that are faithful servants today faithful and wise to take the talents that you've given us and invest them in the market, in the marketplace with people where people are, that they would be changed. And as they're being changed, we get to be changed in the midst of it. So Lord, we pray that even now, may we go out into the highways and byways and invite those, Lord, from under the bridges and invite those, Lord, that wouldn't necessarily be invited to the wedding ceremony otherwise. Because it seems like so many that would be invited that actually would be favored guests have absolutely no interest in coming whatsoever. And God, I just pray that we could be harbingers of that hope and that invitation to the world around us. So we surrender ourselves to you in this. And we pray for your leading. Let this week be a remarkably fruitful week, we pray. In Jesus' name.